uh, and we put ourselves in a box and then we say like, ah, I'm stuck. You know, I can't do anything else. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And we see nothing but obstacles when there's actually tons and tons of opportunities based on the skill sets that we've gained from participating in other areas of life. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to another week of the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm very pleased that you decided to spend this next hour or so with me and my guest. And who is my guest? Her name is Lauren Williams. She is a four-time Olympian, a three-time Olympic medalist, and the first American to medal both in the summer and winter games. I thought it was perfect timing with the Olympics just wrapping up in Tokyo to have a world-class Olympian on the podcast today. The sport of choice for Lauren is the 100 meters, one of the most exciting events where she actually won the silver medal in 2004 in Athens. And she didn't end there as she went on to win a gold medal in the 4x100 meter in 2012 in London. And then she won a silver medal in the bobsled in 2014. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lauren. You will hear just how passionate she is. She's now dedicating the next chapter of her life to helping professionals organize their finances. As a professional athlete, she had some, let's say, poor experiences with financial planners when she started earning income as a professional athlete. She went from relatively zero money to a relatively large sum of money. And when she looked for financial professionals, she actually was taken advantage of. And now she's dedicating herself to resolving this issue. I'm going to also include two videos in the show notes. One is Lauren as the anchor on a four by 100 meter race. And she, ah, it's unbelievable to see her finish. You will see, watch the video and see how much of how far behind she was from the leading, I believe the the leading group was the Jamaican team and just see her finish. It's actually unbelievable. I'm also going to include her silver medal run in hundred meters in the 2004 Olympic games in Athens. Now, something that you will hear throughout the conversation is Lauren's adaptive mindset. And I thought it was really insightful to see how adaptive she is when it comes to looking at what she calls the changing potentials of life. She really believes in this idea of that our potential changes over time. And we can see this through her career as she went from a track and field Olympian. And then when her body no longer could handle the physical demands of the 100 meter, she went over to bobsledding where she won a medal. And now she's changed once again to being a financial planner, speaker, and author. Lauren's comments around our potential changes over time really stuck with me. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Olympian, financial planner, author, and speaker, Lauren Williams. Lauren, welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here, Sean. I can't wait to chat it up with you today. 
I feel like this is going to be one of my most fun podcasts. Okay. All right. The most fun. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. With that statement, I have so many areas to go. The podcast is always focused on the intersection of our minds and our money and what matters most. And we do this through stories. So I'm excited to hear your story. I want to go back in time to, if the internet is correct, it would be Saturday, August 21st, 2004 in Athens, Greece. And again, if the internet is correct, around 10.55 p.m., which seems really late for a final 100-meter race. But if it's correct, (laughs) at 10.55 p.m., Eastern European time it was, you were on the starting blocks for the women's 100-meter final at the Olympic Games. And about 10.96 seconds later, you were an Olympian silver medalist. Let's start there. Looking back on, I guess that would be 17 years now, what significance and meaning has this race had on the story of your life to date, Lauren? Well, the internet, I think, is probably right. I don't have a recollection of the exact time, but I do know that it was at night because afterward I got in and a couple of the athletes had waited up for me that had already been done competing. And I know it was super duper late because we had to do drug testing and media, et cetera. My life was changing forever though in those moments. Earlier in that year, thought that I wanted to be the national championship for track and field. And that was my goal. That was it. That's that's as far as I had thought (laughs) my life in advance. (laughs) Little did I know there was a lot more in store for me. I became a silver medalist. And in that moment, honestly, I wish I could tell you some really cool story about it being awesome. It was overall awesome, but I was like, I lost. Oh man, I can't believe I made it this far and I lost. And it's pretty sad to, you know, get so close to winning and then lose. (laughs) So I was not the happiest camper at 2 a.m. probably, but at 10 p.m. it was like, wow, like I never would have thought, or I guess 11 p.m. I was thinking like, wow, this is far further than I had ever imagined. Yeah, it's so interesting that it goes through your mind, I lost. And it's funny that my son, he's been getting into wanting to run. And I do triathlons on an extremely amateur level. We've entered him into one. And uh, I was telling him that you get a medal for participation. He's like, but I want to win. And I'm like, well, you might get second, third. He's like, no, I want to win. So it's interesting you you say that because I had that conversation with him this morning. What lessons do you think that taught you the idea of, I wanted to be first? Was there any lesson that you've now applied to this wild journey we call life? It's so interesting because, you know, I have found that as I've gotten older and wiser, you know, it's definitely not all about winning. We, we know that, you know, we kind of intuitively know that, but we still want to win. So it's like, how do you really articulate the importance of being competitive while reconciling the importance of understanding that this is about the journey, not about the place. And so, you know, it's not a bad thing for your son to to want to win, but also like how cool is the journey going to be as he figures out the swim, you know, reaches his full potential. That's the thing that ultimately when you get to the finish line, no matter what place you're in, you want to be proud of like, I did everything I possibly could. Therefore, I have reached my full potential on this date and time. And I should be proud of that. It's hard to maybe balance what that is, you know, compete, but also be grateful for where you end up as long as you are striving toward excellence. Well, we both have money background, so I can't help but think about what you just described about being first and that will to compete and then enjoying the journey. What's your perspective on in terms of financial goals with that idea is have you been able to, I guess, experience balance, so to speak, of 
enjoying being second place, so to speak, or enjoying like the day-to-day, our present, the time we have right now versus their future goals. Because a lot of our industries focus on your future long-term goals, save, save, save. What have you experienced, whether through your education, through what you've learned through sports and or as an owner of a financial planning firm now about the balancing act of the will to win, so to speak, versus to enjoy the present moment? The thing that has been the hardest about the enjoying the moment is that you want to see your clients win. I desire, you know, passionately for them to win with their finances. And I see their potential when sometimes they don't. So I think some of my sports background a little bit gets in the way because I'm so excited for what they can do, you know, what they can achieve if they just kind of push themselves outside of their comfort zone. But also, you know, I am very much enjoying the journey. You know, sometimes it takes a little longer to get them where I want them to be (laughs) or where I know they can go. But to finally see them get there on their own time and say like, ah, a light bulb came on. And, you know, we were able to save this much this year or we were able to do this thing that we've always wanted to do is a really, really cool opportunity. So it's a little bit of figuring out how to coach, if you will, and encourage people toward their full potential, but also trying to enjoy, like you said, that my job is to encourage and that things will unfold in in a way that is not specific to anything that I can do. There's a certain amount of responsibility, like I said, when you are a coach, that the athlete has to take. I'm in that same vein, a certain amount of responsibility that my clients are going to have to take. And while it's it's hard to kind of let go of the reins, I have to, because ultimately they are the vehicle. They're the vessel that's going to do the, you know, the quote unquote competition, if you will. Mm-hmm. You said that you want your clients to passionately win. I could hear the passion coming out of your voice as you're talking. And I feel like you would be a natural, fantastic coach and encourager. I don't think encourager is a word, but a person who encourages their clients. I think encourager is totally a word. Yeah, it is today, right now. We'll make it a word. So the research is so clear on money and our money scripts, as uh, Dr. Brad Klontz has coined that term, about how much we learn from our parents or whomever our parental figures were as a kid around money. And I want to get to that, your money story, but first... I want to go back to the the athletic side. You know, I like I said, I have a young son who's a five years old. He's interested in sports. But can you recall the role your parents played as you developed into an athlete? And maybe you can start with, I hope I have this right. You could start with the significance of German Shepherds and watching Flo Joe holograms play. <laughs> you do. You have done your research. <laughs> So the way this goes is my mother, um, who's in town right now and hopefully doesn't overhear us and pop into the room. Uh, Oh, that'd be great. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Kind of take over the show. She will tell you that the way that she knew that I had promise and that she needed to, you know, kind of cultivate my track and field talent is one day I got home faster than our family German Shepherd. So I was out playing. She called us home and I beat the dog home. She was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Something's going on here. This kid's got talent. Now, on the other hand, my dad's story is a little different. And I do have a recollection of my dad's. And I do know I used to go outside and play with the dog. So I don't think either one totally made their story up, but nah. So my dad would tell you that I was at the Carnegie Science Center and there's a Flojo hologram and I spent all day racing the hologram. I didn't see anything else at the <laughs> Science Center. All I wanted to do was just run back and forth with this thing. And I didn't actually beat it. And so I was like the youngest person to beat it that day. 
couldn't have been set at world record pace, but it was a pretty cool <laughs> thing to like run, try to run faster than these, these lights. And that's when he knew that I had some promise in track and field. Wow. And so looking back as a, as a kid who was becoming interested in track and field, your parents were noticing that you were faster than dogs and Olympians, <laughs> hologram. <laughs> as an adult now, looking back, what do you think was one of the most significant support mechanisms that they provided you as you developed into an Olympic athlete? I think that the best thing my parents did for me was encouraging me to be involved in everything. Stick your hand in all the pots, try everything. You know, they didn't send me down one lane. They didn't force track and field down my throat. It wasn't the only thing I did. So softball, ballroom dancing, karate, gymnastics, basketball, you name it. I pretty much participated in it. And it all had a, you know, big prerequisite of taking care of my education first. So from a very young age, I had to juggle lots of balls or juggle lots of things. <laughs> Juggling was not one of the sports I played, but, you know, they really encouraged time management and being involved in various activities. And I think that is something that serves me well, even to this day, because what I see now is a lot of parents, you know, choosing a sport for a child and saying from, you know, three years old, you're going to play tennis. And that's all they ever have in their hand is a tennis racket. And I think, you know, there's there's an opportunity to develop a child in one particular area, but also you've got lots of different muscles, lots of different areas that you need to develop in. And so if you only get one sport, you only get one sports culture. If you only get one sport, you only get one set of skills and use one set of body parts. With that sports culture comes various life skills. So track and field is very individual. I would have only learned to play by myself or, you know, to push myself and motivate myself because I do an individual sport. Whereas, you know, softball, you got to work together as a team, but there's, you know, some individual aspects. Basketball is very team oriented. So you learn different things from being able to participate in various areas of life. And I think diversifying out the things that I was participating in has really served me well as an adult. Super interesting. I don't know if you know who Wayne Gretzky is, but up in Canada, we all know Wayne Gretzky. He was a famous hockey player here in Canada, U.S. He was always an advocate of multiple sports and not just like you're saying, stick to one sport where there's a lot of a culture up here in Canada, at least that I see is parents are really, I use the term forcing, maybe not, but it seems like it's forcing one sport down. And I like your idea of we have many different muscles. And just going back to what we were talking about earlier, the journey, it's interesting how you talked about time management that you've learned. And I think these come as a result of the pursuit of the goal, but it's the journey of getting there that you learn these life skills. Yeah. Goal setting is, is important. The way my company name came to be was I realized, like you said, through my own personal epiphanies is that the goal is not really the thing that we're trying to accomplish. It's all these things that happen along the way that we need to be really excited about because that is actually life. As an Olympian, I can say, you know, Bear's like, what does it feel like to stand on the podium? How cool was that moment? And, you know, they want us to verbalize and articulate that. But what I learned and what I, most of my peers have shared with me is that that was a moment in time. I mean, it's a huge letdown to be like, okay, well, what are we going to eat for lunch? Or, you know, what are we doing next? Because, you know, it is truly just a moment in time. Your national anthem plays, you complete that race, you win that, you know, competition. Um, those are all moments in time. And then there's like another moment where eat, sleep, you know, poop, repeat is going to happen. You know, you have to start putting your attention toward appreciating the journey because the goal becomes like a huge letdown time after time. It doesn't mean you don't set the goal. It doesn't mean you, like you said, you need to pursue something. You're in pursuit of this goal and it feels great to accomplish it, but it is not the destination. 
Yeah, I, I really, really like that. You know, you're you're doing what many people aspire is standing on that podium, but to hear just that the journey and experiencing that goal or um the journey is maybe the one of the most significant parts where you actually use the statement that it's a letdown. And I believe I was reading one of your blogs where you talked about time. And I, I want to ask you about time. And you bring you brought the time up in that, that last answer. And I want to ask you a question about time. There's a quote that I really like from Seneca. And I'm going to read it. And it goes like this. It says, No person would give up even an inch of their estate. And this single dispute with a neighbor can mean hell to pay. Yet we easily let each other encroach on our lives. Worse, we often pave the way for others who will take it over. No person hands out their money to pass buyers. But how many do each of us hand out our lives? We're tight-fisted with property and money, yet too little of wasting time the one thing which we should all be the toughest misers. So this idea of time, it's, it's finite. And I believe you talked about how professional athletes are no different than all of us. We all have 24 hours in our days. And I think many of us, myself included, when you, you th- see these professional athletes, you think, wow, they must have so much time. They can train all day and life must be just no time constraints, just very easy. Looking back at your time as a professional athlete, what lessons, if any, did you learn about time and the significance of time and the role it plays in our lives? And how has that impacted how you live your story and your money story today? Well, I have the fortune and misfortune of having participated in track and field where time is incredibly valuable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's interesting. <laughs> As an example, in 2006, I earned a silver medal at the World Indoor World Championships by point. Zero one photo finish that was, you know, pretty contentious. But then it happened again in 2007 at the Outdoor World Championships. It took them over an hour to decide who won the race. So when you talk about the idea that time is valuable, I think I have the unique perspective and, like I said, privilege of having this additional layer to just how valuable time is. But I also, like you said, it's the curse of always being focused on time. And sometimes, like you said, time is passing you by because you're so focused on time. One of the things I've done recently, so as an example, this weekend, we were finishing up the Olympics. There's another athlete who has just become the third athlete in America to medal in both the summer and the winter Olympics. And there were just tons and tons of media requests coming in because they wanted to hear from the most recent person on like, what is it like to see that there's another and, you know, ask me questions all about it. And I just decided that like, this is my first weekend home after a long trip and it is the weekend. And what will happen if I don't answer any of these questions as it pertains to these articles? Is, is it worth my time to stop my weekend and do four different interviews with four different, you know, it's like, ooh, publicity and fame and, you know, what could come of it? But also, I need a break. And where is my time best spent? You know, I think it's best spent recovering and recuperating from a long trip and, you know, doing normal weekend things. So it's easy to say no sometimes because I realize the value I've learned the value from participating in sport, but I am definitely a victim. As I was listening to you say the quote of, you know, kind of lending my time here and there and just trying to stack all these things in because I think time is so valuable, but there's also not a good use of your time trying to just fill up your plate as opposed to enjoy time maybe and not fill up your plate. So blessing and a curse. What an interesting perspective. I didn't think of that about how important time would be for you during your racing days. 
But yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it's something that we all like to reflect on is time and how we're spending our time. And with that, thank you for spending this hour with us. I want to go back to childhood now. So we're kind of jumping all around your story. And I want to specifically go to what Dr. Brad Klontz has called money scripts. And it's this idea that as a child, through social learning, we hear, feel, and really are impacted on how we view and learn money from our family. And usually it's the parental figures that we model and view how this weird thing called money actually functions. And we tend to start learning at a very young age where we're too immature really to understand the actual idea of money, but we start to feel what associations come around money. And their research really has shown that uh, these money scripts have a significant impact on how we think, feel, and behave around money as an adult. So with that in mind, if you can recall, what is the earliest money memory you had as a child? Ooh, it's so funny because I ask this question of clients and on my podcast all the time. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever had the tables turned on me. Oh, okay. All right. First money memory. I would say, well, one that sticks out, I don't know if it was my first, but an early one is not being able to go to school. So in Detroit, Michigan, I went to private school uh, because the public school system was not up to the, the standards that my parents wanted. And it was expensive. So there wasn't always enough income to really support me, you know, my tuition being paid and paid on time. And so after a certain period, tuition was a certain amount late, they would say you can't come to school until tuition is paid. And so I remember, you know, feeling perfectly fine, getting dressed. And then, you know, my mom saying like, uh, not going to school today, you know, trying to get it all figured out. Hopefully you'll be able to go back by the end of the week. And so to really enjoy school, know what the importance of education was to them, which is why they were spending this money, but also know that I was like, I had to sit out until the money aspect could get figured out. It was pretty painful. I'm curious if there is a correlation at all. I know you do a lot of work now with um, student loan repayments and educating people on student loans. Do you think that your parents focus on education? Because you did talk about how education was important before sports. And then also this desire for your parents to send you to the private school because they valued education. Do you think there's any correlation between that value they had from education to your work now helping people repay student loans, understand how to repay student loans? That is so interesting. You should get like a gold star. Like you're digging deep here. Like (laughs) These are definitely things I never thought of, but like a light bulb is going off and I'm like, maybe that is it because I am incredibly passionate about student loans, even though I never had any. And so it's always been hard for me to articulate why this is so important to me. I think that is a very relevant connection is that education is very important to me. And I know that the cost of education is something that I have feelings around the the fact that there is a cost around learning something that you want to learn or, you know, getting to where like rationally I get that, you know, it has to cost money and that professors need to get paid and the the lights at the school have to be on. But also, um, you know, people that yearn to learn in the, in the way that I do, and then to be, you know, a barrier be put up and it be, you know, money. uh, I, I think it's very unfair. So yeah, you're right. I think that that's probably why I find my work as a student loan planner. So rewarding. I like that yearn to learn statement you made and what a good comment you have on a systems issue that, you know, obviously you have it in the US, we have it in Canada is like, we're paying quite a bit to learn. And amongst so many other things that 
We don't have to pay for our, with the excessive amounts of wealth, is we're still having to pay to learn. I guess that's a systems thing that needs to be addressed, but you're making me think about that. It's like, why do we have to pay? Growing up, did your family have a money motto that you could recall? So money motto might be, can't take money with you, need to save for a rainy day. Anything to that degree? There was not a lot of like, yeah, the cliches being used in the household. You know, I heard a lot of the you know, like the money doesn't grow on trees sort of thing. But what I, what I kind of think is the overall model was like, you got to work in order to get paid. So for as long as I can remember, I have, you know, done some sort of work. So my mom worked at a catering company in the neighborhood on the weekends and I would go. My job was like, you know, they had this like cake slicer and I'd cut the cake and then it was like, don't get it all over your hands, get it into the container. It's not your cake. You know, you remember those things of like, ah. And so, you know, I'm sure I got paid less than minimum wage at at seven years old or whatever it was, cutting cake. But I've always had some sort of little hustle or job of some sort. Um, And as did my parents, you know, they might have had their mainstream of income, but they were always working to do some other sort of thing. And so, I think if there was a narrative more so than a motto, it would be to not be afraid to work because work is where, where the money's going to come from. Okay, great. And yeah, I think I, I read that you, you think there was a statement I saw, you said money is earned and nothing is given. Ah, so there, look, there it is again. I definitely was not the kid that got an allowance. There was lots of opportunities and they never told me no when I was out. You know, At one point I was selling candy, so I'd go get the candy from the, the penny store and then I go sell it for double at school. And so <laughs> people are like, wait a minute, but I know it's only 25 cents at the penny store. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't go to the penny store. So if you want to go wait to the <laughs> store or you can pay this. Oh, wow. You supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. <laughs> yeah. It's just so fascinating how these, all these little dots in our past, you can somehow derive a correlation to how we view or the perspective we see of money and the relationship we have of it today. And I think I heard this on something I read about or listened to you or read it. It's about sudden money. And what I mean by that is there's actually some research around this idea of sudden wealth syndrome. And it's often related to athletes when they are in college or university and they're seemingly making relatively no income to all of a sudden making some income and high incomes. And I read online that you found yourself in a similar situation as a University of Miami athlete. Um presumably no income or very little income to suddenly earning over six figures at a young age. And I think this is something that we often overlook in just overall society is the complexity that this idea of sudden wealth or even wealth in general has on us. We know that our relationship with money is complex and I can only imagine sudden wealth for for an athlete we're talking here has many complexities. Can you explain your experience with being an Olympian athlete or maybe this is pre-Olympian athlete, but uh, an athlete that went from being a university, however much income you were making to, I believe you had some sponsorships come in and just talk about that experience of all of a sudden, wow, I have money. Yeah, it was an interesting experience because like you said, literally overnight, I went from you know a normal college student to, oh, I won the NCAA championships and oh, you also ran the second fastest time in the world, which makes you the fastest American. Things that were not on my radar at all to, you know, like I said, my door kind of being knocked down by various sponsors and having to navigate being a junior in college to, hey, it's time to be a grown-up right now. And uh, you need to choose which one of these sponsors you want to go with. 
which contract is better. And first you need to choose which agent so they can negotiate, you know, the best contract. And you're just like, what? Last night I was like hanging out with friends and trying to win a race. That's it. So it's very shocking to find yourself in that position. I think one of the things I had on my side was, you know, being a finance major. Uh, There was very little personal finance taught at the time that I was in school, but at least had some awareness around money being something that was a tool and that there were some strategies that could be used, even though I didn't really know or understand those or I didn't have any clear examples. So my parents were not very high earning. We're not great savers. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of financial literacy passed around, even though they said education was very important, and even though they were both very hard workers. So I realized like, ha, okay, I have this opportunity. I have way more money than I could like ever need in my mind. I thought I was like filthy rich, but you know, when you go from living off a thousand bucks a month as a college student to like you said, earning over 200 K a year, it's like, wow, this is literally more money than I've ever seen. And I realized that there was opportunity there and I didn't know what to do. So I was nervous, but I also wanted to make good decisions. And I realized that there were people out there that were smarter than me, which is kind of where I decided to hire a financial professional. And uh, from your bio, that wasn't the most enjoyable experience, was it? Exactly. While I had good intentions, I did not end up in the right hands initially. And I think that's really the hardest thing about anything is you want information and you're in, in pursuit of information or knowledge but not everything that you will come across as it pertains to knowledge and resources is going to be beneficial. You know, some of that's outside of your control. You know, I'm not in the story of like someone who stole my money or, you know, did some really terrible thing to me, but I also was not well cared for. And, you know, I don't think that I did anything wrong because I was trying to find a a financial professional. I was trying to be organized with my finances. I was, you know, wanting to do the right things, but didn't have the resources around me to, to be able to decipher whether, you know, gentleman A or gentleman B was going to be the right person for me. And so not beating yourself up when you make those mistakes, I think is another big piece of the puzzle because some things are truly outside of our control. And I did, I felt a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment, even getting into the industry. I had to deal with like a whole nother, like you deal with it as an individual, you kind of shame yourself, but then you get into the industry and it's like, you know, so many more things that it makes you even more ashamed what you didn't know previously. Yeah, wow. Such a big point you hit on there is that that feeling of shame. And I think we don't talk about the shame we feel around money enough because we think we should have it together. And to your point, you learn the education, then sometimes you're like, wait, why am I not doing this? What's wrong with me? What have you learned helps deal with, again, to use your words, the shame around money? What has helped you navigate those emotions when you feel money shame? Honestly, I think what has been best is sharing it, um, which is the hardest thing to do is to be open and to be honest about the things you've experienced, about the mistakes that you've made. And like I said, one of the reasons I think the shame is, is at an additional level when you become a financial professional is because you feel, you know, the narratives of, oh, you're a professional, you know, you know these things. So you, of course, don't make any mistakes. Um, and there is something that says, like, we're supposed to know this and you should make no mistakes because of it. It's like, no, we're humans. And even financial professionals have financial professionals. I'm a financial planner that has a financial planner because money is that thing that's really hard to be objective with. And just opening your mouth and saying like, oh, I made a mistake. Ooh, this didn't work out in my best interest. Or, you know, like I said, there, there are things that are still going to be outside of your control. Even when you have information and knowledge available to you, you're still trying to make the best decision based on the amount of information that is available. So 
when you share with someone, I screwed up, um, it is so freeing because ultimately on the other end of that is just like, oh, okay. And you become human or, you know, even if there's someone on the other end that's judging, like they're probably not in the best financial situation anyway. So what you're generally going to be met with is compassion and empathy or sympathy. I don't know which one is the proper use of the word, but people get understanding. And like you said, this, just the sharing of the story, you know, you don't feel alone anymore. I think that's such a, a powerful answer. You use the word freeing. And I really believe that sharing those vulnerabilities and sharing those difficulties that we have around money, I agree, it's so freeing. And to your point about if people judge you, often judgments are just a reflection of what's not going so well in ourselves. I feel when you, you, you're comfortable enough to share and be open, a lot of times it helps people reduce their judgments and make people think, well, okay, hey, you're sharing, I'm going to start sharing. So I, I really, really like your perspective on that. And I think the work you're doing, I guarantee you your clients feel compassion or empathy, whichever one we want to use there in terms of the way you approach them. And I think a lot of our the professions in our industry can really benefit by utilizing that perspective of having some compassion because we both know that and you haven't ex- had experience of that is that sometimes it's not there. And I really, really think as an industry, we need to do a better job. Yeah. Like I said, as an industry, we need to do a better job of like being human. You know, like I said, the narrative that we are the professionals, like you said, we have far more education than than the average person and, you know, are probably smarter in the area of finance than 98% of the world, but also you're not perfect. And I think, you know, the more that you can humanize yourself, the more your client will be able to relate to you uh, and the better off everybody will be, the more comfortable people who are not comfortable joining the industry from a perspective of like, there's clients out there that are just like, oh, I can't talk to a financial person. They're going to make me feel dumb. When you humanize yourself and you share your blemishes and flaws, that makes it more inviting to those who may be hesitant to even uh, seek out a financial professional. Yeah. You just gave me a marketing idea. Maybe we should all just market our blemishes and our mistakes to humanize us so that people are like, oh, okay, this, this person is a human. <laughs> Here's all the bad things I've done. No, right. not bad, but like mistakes. I want to now go to obstacles or transition periods in our lives. And I think this is very applicable to our money stories because often we experience a nonlinear progression in our lives and our money story. So what I mean by nonlinear we might create a financial plan that says from today till X date, I'm going to save and have this much money. But as we both know, life has its ups and downs and it's not linear. For you, when I was reading about your story, I noticed there were some moments of, I would call it resistance or transitions that it seems like, and I don't know the full story, that you handled them well. I can imagine though, there was a lot of conversations you had with yourself during those times, but I want to specifically speak of obstacles and transitions in life. And specifically what I'm talking about, and again, if the internet is correct, in July 2013, you had a nagging injury that prevented you from finishing your final track season. And I don't know the timelines here, but apparently you didn't stop your Olympian dreams because then you transitioned to the sport of bobsledding, which you practiced down the highway for me, by the way, in Calgary. I'm in Edmonton. Uh-huh. And you won a silver medal in the 2014 Sochi Games. So now I see you transitioning into the next part of your journey as an author, speaker, and financial planner. So what have you learned about obstacles and transition periods in your life? And how have those lessons helped you navigate your story and your money story? I would say if I had to summarize what I've learned about obstacles, 
It's this idea that, like you said, we talked a little bit earlier about reaching your full potential, that realizing that your potential changes over time. And so for me, when I was leaving track and field, I had no idea. Was it once again that bobsled was around the corner? That wasn't something I grew up wanting to do or be. But I was having a hard time, like you said, one, managing my weight within track and field, but then two, also, like you said, staying injury free. And I I knew that I was at the end of my career, that there was not going to be another sponsorship contract coming once the current one was complete. And so being open to the idea of something different when the opportunity came along, but then also realizing like, ha, okay, I literally was in track season two weeks before I showed up at the Olympic trials for bobsled. Uh, And just was like, well, I'll give it a try. I don't know. Like I didn't have any real expectations, but I got there and I was like, ha, they want me to use, you know, my body that is, you know, kind of wrecked for track and field, but I am like awesome at this thing. Like I'm, I'm very good at being powerful and I can still run. I just can't run with enough force to, you know, like I said, be competitive in this sport. So I had to figure out how to use my body in a different way. I still had plenty of potential. I just had to like get outside of the box and realize like, ah, okay, I have reached my full potential in track and field, you know, the pinnacle here, but I have not reached the pinnacle in other things that I can do with this body that is very elite in, you know, in, in multiple different ways. So moving over to bobsled, you know, being asked to gain weight. And I'm like, what? Like I was over there starving in track and field. And, you know, like your body changes over time. Like, that's a thing. Like we only talk about it at like puberty for childhood, but your body is constantly changing. And it was just like, that was not a proper weight for me anymore. And I was being unhealthy by trying to stay in a box in track and field and, you know, keep my weight here. Whereas I could, you know, gain some weight, still be a healthy person and still be a great athlete. Like what a cool thing to be able to go from one sport over to the another, because you allowed yourself to transition. You allowed your body to take shape and change and to reach your full potential in a completely different way than what you were previously doing. I think so often we put ourselves in a box and say like, I'm only good at this one thing. And you can take that over into, you know, now from sport over into to finances. There are many tools that I previously got from participating in sport that I'm now using over in the financial world. Sometimes we just don't see those, you know, the way that those things can mesh in the crossover. Uh, and we put ourselves in a box and then we say like, ah, I'm stuck. You know, I can't do anything else. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And we see nothing but obstacles when there's actually tons and tons of opportunities based on the skill sets that we've gained from participating in other areas of life. Wow. You know the book Growth Mindset by Carol Dwick? I don't. Oh, it's really good. It's about having a growth mindset of, like you were saying, put yourself in a box. So hers would be just viewing the world as opportunities to grow. And earlier you talked about how your parents and you believed in multiple sports. It's so interesting to see then the trajectory of your career as Olympian and medalist Olympian in track and field, then bobsledding. And then it's interesting though, even now you're not just a financial planner, you're doing a podcast, you're an author, you're a speaker. So you're, you're still not putting yourself in a box. You're taking your own advice and not putting yourself in the box. And I really like that idea of your potential changes over time. We often hear people saying, live up to your true potential. I've never seen it framed that way as your potential changes over time. So I think that's a really, really good takeaway for many people. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that's a lot of wisdom that we can take away is that our potential changes over time. And when we don't put ourselves in that box, we can see through the obstacles almost as opportunities. Definitely. If there's one thing that people could take away from listening, it's the idea that your potential will change, but it doesn't mean that you don't have potential anymore. That's so good. I like that. 
All right, we are coming up to our time. I'm going to ask you a quick question and then I have a final question to ask everyone. I have read that you have traveled extensively. Extensively is an understatement. I believe 35 of the 50 states and 49 countries. In the book, Happy Money, two researchers talk about how to spend your money on things that make you happy. And one of them is to spend it on experiences. So you clearly are taking this advice, going to 49 countries. I'm curious, now that COVID, well, who knows what's happening with the variants and everything, but as travel opens up, what is one place that you want to go experience? Maybe it's one of the 49 you've already experienced or one of on your list. Where's somewhere that you are desiring to explore? Oh, this list is extensive. So I just came back from two weeks in Colombia. It is definitely my top two countries. So now it's between Colombia and Switzerland for like favorite place on earth so far. <laughs> but on my to-do list, I have Ecuador. I have Madagascar. I have Antarctica as something I'd like to do soon. And Chile. Chile has been on my to-do list for a good little bit. I was actually scheduled to go last year and got canceled, scheduled to go this year and got canceled. So that's probably the top of my list just because it keeps getting kind of knocked down. Not so much because it's like a, a big priority for me, but it's like, what do they not want me to see here in Chile that I haven't made it yet? I guess third time's a charm now. Right. You didn't mention Calgary again. It's a wonderful place to visit. The people are so kind. But the snow? Oh, my. Oh, yeah. It gets cold here. Where did you go in Colombia? Oh, I was in Medellin, Guatape, San Andreas, and Bogota. Oh, wow. Our family, we were going to go to Colombia, but we decided to go to Mexico. This was back in 2019 for three weeks. Maybe we got to go to Colombia now. You have to go to Colombia. It is amazing. Like I said, top two on my list right now. And I'm at 49 countries. That's okay. We will. Well, thank you so much for joining me. My final question is one that I consistently ask people. Let's now fast forward till you're 95, maybe life expectancy increases when you're 95, but you're at the end of life. You can be anywhere in the world. Maybe it's Columbia, but you can be anywhere in the world. You're sitting on a front porch, looking at an ocean, a mountain, a meadow. It doesn't matter. Whatever brings you peace. And if you were tasked to write a letter on what you learned to have a healthy relationship with money, what would the theme of that letter be? I would say the theme would be understanding that money is truly a tool to help you live the life that you want and that they say the best things in life are free. Uh, and I know that to be true, having you know so many experiences. Like I said, the older you get, the wiser you get. And you realize that things that are wonderful don't generally cost a lot. So that money is going to enhance things that are already in existence in your life. And it it is not the thing that you need in order to have a wonderful life. I think that would be this letter. I really like that idea of enhancing, not being the source. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you let our audience know where they can find more about you, about your book? Maybe you want to talk about some retreats that you're doing in the future. Just explain where people can find more about you. You can find me easily at worth-winning.com. My name is Lauren, spelled with the Y. So if you just throw that into Google, L-A-U-R-Y-N Williams, uh, you can find my personal website about sports and social media, et cetera. And the thing that I am most excited about coming up next in my life is starting to do retreats because I'd love to start getting people together so that they can talk about money. Like We talked about shame and how you get over that by just simply saying things out loud. So to create community so people realize that they're not alone in their money journey, 
I think is going to be a really cool thing. And, and to do that around an experience, you know, like taking people to Columbia, uh, experience this place and also get your finances together. Oh, great idea. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated F Word podcast this week. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast, this conversation with Lauren Williams as much as I did. I really hope everyone goes over to her website and checks out her blog, her podcast, and to see what she's up to. Again, thank you, Lauren, for joining me on the podcast. I have a favor. If you have two to three minutes this week, if you could please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would be very much appreciated, as it does help get guests like Lauren on the podcast. Until next week, have a great one.